Psalm 111. If you have your Bible, please go with me there to the Psalm, the book of Psalms, Psalm 111. And the psalmist says, Hallelujah! I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. Verse 7, the works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. So the psalmist tells us all about God, and in verse 10, he responds. He says, so in light of what God has done, this is what he says in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praises endures forever. Now, this particular psalm, Psalm 111, has no known author. We don't know who wrote it, but we know that the style of the psalm is exactly the same as Psalm 112. They go together. And they are both acrostic poems. For those of you who've studied English and who like literature, you know, let me be more specific before you correct me. This kind of poem that we are reading in Psalm 111 is an Abyssinian acrostic poem. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I've done my research, so I'll tell you. It means that each line of the psalm after hallelujah begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And those of you guys who don't understand Hebrew, right? So let me show you an English example. So this gentleman by the name of Randall Mann has written an acrostic poem and you would see that each line begins with the letter of the alphabet. And so somebody was reading this poem this morning and they were saying, Adore my song back in 87. Cool beans, I'm like, no. Someone said, Adore my song back in 87. Cool beans, I like to say, desperately uncool, except for you. And he goes on and on until he gets to Z. So this psalm is like that. It is written, each line as you read it, it's a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why would people use an acrostic poem? It's because it's easy to remember. Those of you guys who went to kindergarten, not crash, but kindergarten, you would remember you did a something, uh, an acrostic poem with mother, right? To kind of remember, what does your mom do? I, I see the, net, the, 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 head, the head nodding. Those of you guys who, who grew up in apartheid, you don't understand. Let's move on. Let's go on. And so when this poem was written, it was written in such a way that it could be easily remembered so that it could be told from generation to generation. People were expected to memorize it and teach their children about God's goodness. And so Psalm 111 speaks about God, who He is, and what He has done. It also points us to eternity. So this psalm says God is active. He is not absent. At the same time, He is eternal. He didn't just care about the here and now. He also cares about tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow. So God always has eternity in mind. And Psalm 112, which follows this, is 
the righteous person's response to who God is. But because we're in Psalm 111 this morning, I want us to go back and just to quickly look at what this psalm is about. So verse 1, hallelujah, I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So right from the jump, the psalmist says, I am going to praise God with my whole heart, with my whole being. All of me is going to praise God. It reminds us of Psalm 150 when he says, let everything that is breath praise the Lord. But this writer says, I'm not going to praise God alone. I'm going to praise God in the assembly, in the congregation. This psalm is a communal psalm. He's inviting all of us to praise God. He says, God has been too good to me for me to praise God alone. Come along, come beside me so we can all together praise God. But then the question always arises, why are we praising God? And so in the rest of the psalm, he tells us why we are called to praise God. Verse 2, he says, The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. Simply put, we praise God because His works are great. I wonder, even as you're sitting here this morning, that as you try and look back on this year, can you think of God's goodness toward you? Can you think of at least one thing that God has done for you? I know that as some of you are thinking about God's goodness this year, like, I didn't get the answers to my prayer. So I don't think God has been too good because for us, goodness and greatness is God having done exactly what we asked of Him at the beginning of the year, right? But remember what we said, God is eternal. And so, sometimes, God has a greater picture. In fact, always, He's got a greater picture than what you have. So the psalmist says, yes, you might be caught up in a place where you don't see the goodness of God. So let me help you. Let me help you reflect on God's goodness properly. And so in verse 3, he says, all that he does, meaning God, is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. So the psalmist says, if you're struggling to thank God for something, well, start looking around. You can go ahead and look around. Look at your neighbor. Just look around the room. If we could go outside, I'd say, let's go look outside. He says, when you look around, you realize that everything you see is there because God created it. Everything that you experience in your life is because God is the one who has put it there. Even this heat. Everything that is beautiful, God has created. And so he says, look around and marvel. For some of you, you like going to zoos and the game reserve and the Kruger Park, and you marvel at those animals. He says, this is what you need to do first. Look outside of yourself and look at what God has done. Marvel at that. And when you see God's creation, you won't help yourself but to praise Him. Charles Spurgeon says the following thing about God. He says, in design, in size, in number, in excellence, all the works of the Lord are great. Even the little things of God are great. So he says, look at creation. But then he pushes us a step further. Verse 4, he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. 
He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. So in verses 4 to 7, the writer reminds the children of Israel about God's rescue. That guys, you were lost in Egypt, but God came down and he rescued you. He took you up because he had made a promise to Abraham. But he didn't just rescue you, he also fed you in the desert. He parted the Red Sea. Every time you complained, God met every single need that you have. One Jewish writer says this about God. He says, God desires his saving acts to be remembered among his people. It is a failure of humanity that the miracles of his salvation are forgotten, or worse, not recognized. So he is saying to us, perhaps you should look back at your life again. Maybe you didn't see anything the first time, but look back again. And try and see where God has saved you. It could be that time that God saved you from an accident. Or when you're about to make a dumb decision and God showed up. When you're about to give up on life and God delivered you. He says all those instances are not coincidences. That is God at work. And you must praise him for that. Because he's a God who saves. But not only that, he's a God who keeps his promises. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Now, Jewish people pray the Amidah, and that's a prayer that they say probably about three times in a day. And when they pray this prayer at Rosh Hashanah, at their new year, at the beginning of a new year, they repeat verses 4 and 5 over and over and over again. Why is this important? He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. That says to us that even today, God provides for our daily needs. That's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, ask God for what? Your daily bread. So he's saying, God is not removed from your struggles. He's not a God who's far and distant. No, he is close. And he cares. He's concerned even about what you need to eat. And so he says, because God keeps his promises, I dare you to ask him to intervene in your life. Why? Because when God intervenes, you too can join the assembly. You too can join the congregation to give him what? Praise. Because that is what he deserves. So you could be here this morning and you desperately need a divine intervention in your life. Child of God, don't walk out of here without asking God. Don't walk out of here without asking for prayer because perhaps the God who keeps his promises will keep his promise to you. So you too can come and celebrate and thank God for his goodness and his faithfulness. In our lives, he's a God who wants us to attest to his goodness. And then in verse 8, he says, They are established forever and ever, forever and ever. That is his promises. Enacted in truth and in, and in uprightness. He has, sent, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy 
and awe-inspiring. Not only does God care about our present, He ultimately cares about our eternal future. God cares about where we will end up. And so He sent Jesus to die for us in our place so that we can be redeemed. So Paul, writing to church in Rome, says, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So God desires us to put our trust in Jesus so that our shackles of sin and death can be removed. So you not only focus on earthly things, but on those things that are eternal because God is an eternal God. See, friends, fame, money, power are all good for this life. But they will not save you in the life to come. You will leave all of that behind. How do we know? We go to Egypt and we find the the tombs of the pharaohs, and they are still full of stuff. Well, the thieves stole the stuff. If you're a billionaire in this life, when you die, trust me, your kids are going to fight for your money. You left it behind. But God says, when you put put your trust in my son, I care about where you will be. Because I'm not just a God who cares about you every day. I'm a God who cares about you forever. And I want you to be with me in eternity. This is why I've sent my son. So God says, because I save, because I save to the uttermost, you should give me praise. We should come to God with reverence and thankfulness. That is why in verse 10 he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When I realize that God can save to the uttermost, I realize that I must follow his instructions, have good insight, His praise endures forever. So, child of God, this morning I encourage you. I encourage you to thank God, to praise God with us. For His faithfulness in your life. Do it within the gathered assembly. Because we are called to do it as a community. Say, God, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Now, because I'm a human being, I know very well that There are some, even this morning, in this room, who would say, yes, you've asked me to reflect. Yes, you've asked me to look at nature. Yes, you've asked me to reflect again. But truth be told, I don't feel that I've seen the goodness of God in my life this year. In fact, this has been the worst year of my life. And for many South Africans, that's the truth. This has been a very bad year. Now, I don't want to dismiss your skepticism. I don't want to dismiss your truth. Because yes, for some of you, this has been a brutal year. But I want to encourage you with a text in Scripture that I've been encouraging myself with. As I look back and try to see the threads of of God's goodness in my life, and I found encouragement in 2 Kings 6. And I'll just read from verse 8. As I said, I'm not going to be long this morning, so I'm not going to explain the text. I'm just going to read it for you. I hope you understand it as we read it. When the king of Aram was waging war against Israel, he confronted his servants. And he says to his servants, my camp will be at such and such a place. But the men of God, this is Elisha in Israel, sent word to the king of Israel. So Aram is attacking Israel. So the men of God sent word to the king of Israel. Be careful by passing by this place, for the Arameans are going down there. Verse 10. Consequently, the king of Israel sent word to the place the men of God had told him about. The man of God repeatedly warned the king so the king would be on his guard. 
So Aram was not able to defeat Israel because God kept on telling the prophet what Aram was about to do. The king of Aram was enraged because of this matter, and he called his servants and demanded of them, tell me, which one of, which one of us is for the king of Israel? So he thought he had a spy in his midst. Verse 12, one of his servants said, no, no one, my lord. Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel even the words you speak in your bedroom. So the king said, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. When he, when he was told Elisha is in Dothan, he sent horses, chariots, and a massive army there. They went by night and surrounded the city. A whole army goes to attack one man. And they go by night because bad things always happen at night, right? When the servant of the man of God got up early and went out, he discovered an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. Maybe your life it feels just like this. You feel surrounded. They're about to suffocate. God, I don't see your goodness. Everyone is out to get me. Life is too hard. That's what he was seeing. That was his reality. So he asked Elisha, oh my master, what are we to do? Here's my encouragement. Elisha said in verse 16, don't be afraid. For those who are with us at number, those who are with them. Who was with Elisha? Who was with Elisha? Come on, come on, class. Who was with Elisha? The God who cares about your present. The God who cares about your eternity. That's who was with Elisha. God cared that in that moment, these two people were about to be attacked by an army. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. Listen to me. He doesn't say this is a mirage. This is pretend. There's a reality that, that we are facing. But he says, Lord, please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Here's my prayer for you. That in the midst of the darkness that might be in your life, that God would open up your eyes to see that he is with you. And because he is with you, you too can join in and praise God. God for his goodness and for his faithfulness towards you, even in this year. Then there's another group of people who might be here this morning, you're like, yeah, I hear you, pastor, talk about the goodness of God, but I don't even know God. Let alone know his goodness. I don't even know God. So I'm not even a part of the congregation that can give God praise. Well, my friend, we just spoke about Jesus who came down so that we could be redeemed. It is through his death and resurrection that we would have fullness of life in God and therefore be able to praise him. And what God would want you to do is not some magic trick, but surrender your life. And say, God, I, I see that you care about me, God. You don't only care about my present, you also care about my tomorrow, God. I surrender. You respond like verse 10. I surrender. Ephesians 2 and 17 says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. When you surrender your life, you immediately become a part of the congregation of God. And if that's you this morning, you don't know God. I'd love to have a conversation with you after the service. Let's talk about how you can be a member of the congregation. But for the rest of us at this time, God says, I'm faithful. I'm a God of covenant. Our response should be, thank you, God. As a church that was two and now one, God has indeed done something marvelous in our eyes. There's much to thank God for. There's much to say, God, you are worthy of honor. That we as a congregation, as an assembly, can collectively come with one heart to say, Three Alevuha, Umuholun Dadem.